Hello, chroniclers, history buffs, and guides to other and past worlds. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of this show, and I am showing up in our new season with a new collaboration interview, this time with the San Diego Writers Festival. I was deeply privileged to get to interview Caitlin Greenidge earlier this summer as part of that festival, which, like every festival this year, went virtual. My conversation with Caitlin was incredibly inspiring because her novel, Liberty, made a deep impact on me. It's the story of Liberty, an educated Black girl in Reconstruction-era America who's born free to a Black doctor, the first and only Black female doctor in this place that in modern times is Brooklyn, New York. And the tensions in this book are multifold because it explores how Liberty's mother's desires for Liberty's future are at odds with what Liberty wants for herself and how that plays out almost to the point of disaster. The novel is about love. It's about the great hope of Haiti at a time when people believed it would be a free Black country and were pinning all kinds of hopes on it. And the book explores another important tension, too, and that's the crackdown that was happening in Reconstruction-era America. And this is where Caitlin explores parallels to today. During Reconstruction, the push-pull was between Black advancement and white supremacy, which should sound pretty familiar. So this book is therefore a window into our past, and it's also an opportunity to understand some of what we're living through today through a really beautifully told story about a girl living and navigating her life and her opportunities in the late 1800s. In this interview, Caitlin talks about her inspiration for writing this story and some of the goals and aims she had in writing the book, also about her characters. And we all know that history repeats itself, that history is the present. James Baldwin wrote, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. If we pretend otherwise, we are literally criminals. I didn't know or remember too much about Reconstruction before reading Liberty. And this book really caused me to go and look back and explore uh, a lot of what's being written, not so much about Reconstruction then or what it was, but more about how it's repeating itself right now in 2020 and 2021 about the rise of white supremacy and its historical roots. And so this is a current and personal example of how reading fiction helped to inform me of something that's so present, so looming, so threatening. Understanding all this in a historical context is a gift that Caitlin has given me personally, and more broadly, it speaks to the power of fiction to educate and inform. So today's interview, as I said earlier, was part of this year's San Diego Writers Festival. The San Diego Writers Festival is a free community-based event designed to celebrate the power of writing and storytelling. So I know Grant would love that, and I know he's with us in spirit. So before we get to my interview with Caitlin, let me tell you a little bit about who she is. Caitlin Greenidge's debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was one of the New York Times critics' top 10 books of 2016. Her writing has appeared in Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, Elle, BuzzFeed, and many other places. She is the recipient of fellowships from the Whitting Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute, and others. She is currently the Features Director at Harper's Bazaar, as well as a contributing writer for The New York Times. Her second novel, Liberty, just recently released, is the subject of this interview you're about to listen to. Thank you and enjoy. 
I thought we'd start with talking a little bit for people who are less familiar with the book about the era in which it's set, which is Reconstruction, and also that the book is based off, well, Liberty's mother is based off of a real-life person, Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, who was a doctor during the Reconstruction era. So I wanted to ask you about uh, how you first found out about her and whether you immediately knew there was a novel there. Sure. Um, so as you said, the book is based on the life of Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart. Um, and she was the first black female doctor in New York state. She was practicing, um, in the 1880s and 1890s. And she grew up in a community called Weeksville, which was a free black community founded in central Brooklyn in the eight, in 1838. So 11 years after the end of slave, the official end of slavery in New York state. Um, and I worked at a museum called the Weeksville Heritage Center, which was dedicated to preserving the history of Weeksville and the stories of the people who lived there and founded it. And um, the people who founded Weeksville, uh, Central Brooklyn at that time, it would have been considered like really undesirable tract of land, uh, because if you can imagine in the 1830s, uh, Brooklyn is really undeveloped. It's mostly farmland. Um, uh, where Weeksville was, was pretty far from the waterfront. So it wasn't really connected to the commercial center of Brooklyn. Um, this group of black men got together and they bought this tract of land and they divided it into smaller lots because at that time in New York to be able to vote, there was a, um, a requirement of a certain, you had to own a certain amount of land. So they um, divided these lots and basically the minimum amount of land that you would need to register to vote. And then they advertised to other Black men throughout the uh, Northeast in Black newspapers saying, come to Weeksville, we're going to build this community here, we're building, we're intentionally building this Black voting block to eventually enter into the political life of New York State and sort of steer the destiny of uh, Black people here. So um, because it had sort of that push behind its creation, it, it, it attracted a whole bunch of people and it was home to its own um, newspaper, its own school. Um, uh, abolitionists were really drawn to the area, but then also just working class Black people as well were drawn to the area to live there. Um, and uh, it was a really remarkable place. The history of the whole place is really sort of stunning. And, and um, from 1838 into the 20th century, it's just been a, a, a sort of like a hotbed of really sort of interesting intersections of American history. Um, and when I worked there, I was really lucky to work on their oral history project. And so one of the things that we were doing was we were interviewing people who had a connection to Weeksville. Either um, they were a descendant of one of the founders or they had somehow had some sort of connection to the museum. And so we interviewed this woman named Ellen Hawley, who's a, a soap opera actress. Some people may recognize her name from, um, she starred in One Life to Live in the 1970s. And um, she's also a really wonderful historian. She wrote a memoir of her family history called One Life that um, traced her family history from um, the early 1700s through into her own uh, life growing up in New Jersey. Um, and she told us the story. Uh, she was a descendant of this woman, uh, Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, who had grown up in Weeksville, whose father, Solana Smith, had been one of those men who um, bought the, the lot of land and, and, and divided it up and sold to other Black men. Um, and she told us the story about her, her ancestor, and I was expecting her to sort of tell us about this doctor. But um, of the many stories she told us, she told us this really remarkable story of the doctor's daughter, her own grandmother, this woman named um, Anna uh, McKinney Holly. 
Um, and Anna was uh, Susan's daughter, and she married the son of the Episcopal Archbishop of Haiti. She moved down there, um, was really sort of uh, fell in love with the city, uh, with, the, with the town of uh, Port-au-Prince and the country of Haiti. Um, but her marriage sort of fell apart very quickly. And her mother helped her escape this, what ended up being becoming a, a pretty abusive marriage. Um, and so Ellen Holly told us the story and was sort of like it was, she, she really framed it in this wonderful way where she was pointing out, both the courage that it would have taken to leave an abusive marriage in um, the the early 1900s, because um, that's the time period that um, she was getting that that the the story actually took place in. I fictionalized it and aged it back a few years, but um, the actual true story took place in the early 1900s. So she said, not only would it have taken sort of this courage to leave um, this marriage at this time period, uh, but also to leave it because she was a part of this very particular black. Uh, uh, social class of black people um you know the talented 10th sort of like the upper middle class and upper class uh black elite um who had this very sort of particular notion of of how and where you were supposed to be and sort of um inhabit blackness and so to leave this family meant not only was she leaving this abusive marriage but she was also essentially um uh for many of her peers uh sort of looked at it as her uh, giving up on on uh ideas of blackness and sort of bringing shame to her entire race so not only was she sort of dealing with the dissolution of this relationship and and all of that felt all that sort of pain that that felt like she had most of her peers around her and definitely her in-laws who for the rest of her life sort of wrote her letters saying this telling her that she was um basically upholding white supremacy sort of like bringing shame to every black woman everywhere by um not staying in this marriage well that's amazing backstory and i wanted to ask you about the complexity of the character dynamics in particular with the mother and liberty your your protagonist and also emmanuel who is the the haitian who she falls in love with but clearly <laughs> the complexity of these these two particular characters and how they interact um you know liberty and her mother and liberty and emmanuel uh, when i was reading it i just felt like you must have some secret psychology degree because it was so emotionally wrought and also liberty is reactive sometimes you know and sort of makes these impulsive decisions and then you know you're very much in her mindset of her regrets and all kinds of other things and so i wanted to ask you about that in particular you know just the rendering of not only a complex character in liberty but i think in particular with character dynamics because i think that's so important to fiction and one of the things that a lot of novelists you know either don't do as well as you do or sometimes i think maybe don't even know how to do so what's your you know how what's your approach to that um, you know, I think it's just being as close to your characters on the page as you can and just really thinking through every decision that they're making and um, really sort of tracing the decisions that they make back to some sort of emotional logic. So emotional logic is very different than intellectual logic or, um, you know, like mechanical logic, emotional logic. <laughs> 
um, is going to sometimes make your characters do things that are infuriating or um, things that don't make sense to the other people in the in the book or, or things that are, um, you know, inappropriate or, um, you know, that word that everybody uses problematic, like emotional logic leads characters and, um, and, you know, people in the real world to make decisions that are messy. And so when you start to really think through the emotional logic for your characters, you can really sort of um, figure out how to bring them to life on the page. Thank you for that. Um, you know, reading your book did remind me of Toni Morrison in a particular way around the magical realism. And I saw later the New York Times mentioned Beloved, and then I read an, a, a rumpus interview that you did where you said, you know, Toni Morrison, in fact, didn't inspire this book. But I did want to ask you about the the magical realism part in particular, uh, especially how it shows up with your character, Ben Daisy, who I want to ask you about in a second. Um, it was so unusual and also really striking. And I wanted to ask you about the role of magical realism and spiritualism in the novel. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to, the novel is in part about sort of like um, how and if people can heal from really big, huge sort of like uh, generational level traumas like like slavery or um, or freeing yourself from slavery or um, living through an era like reconstruction. So what does that look like in the micro level and in the personal level when you're just trying to either survive or sort of heal that, heal um, and live through that. And one of the sort of biggest coping mechanisms is spirituality, is how people um, order the world and explain to themselves how they think the world is is working and why certain things are happening in the world around them. Um, So the magical realism in the book, every sort of fantastical thing that a character sees or experiences can also be explained through their psychological state, um, which I think is probably pretty common for for how um, people experience those sorts of things you know I'm I'm really sort of drawn to a lot of people who use magical realism in their writing say this but I think probably the most famous person who says it it gets quoted most often is Gabriel Garcia Marquez where he points out that everything that um, is read as magical realism in his novel is just things that actually happen when you're living under a system like colonialism or post-colonialism or or dictatorship you know when you're living under these incredibly oppressive and sort of violent and um, really really tortured kind of systems um, strange things happen and you are um, and it's sort of the uh, uh, another form of of colonization that the the sort of larger framework tells you that it's impossible for those things to happen or um uh, you know whatever happened you must have been sort of making it up or or, or sort of dreaming about it um mm-hmm. and then the other part of it is that the book does take place partly in Haiti um and I did not want to sort of fall into the cliche of describing voodoo in like a really sort of like um just inauthentic way. So I've tried to read as much as possible about um, sort of the theories around um, voodoo and and why people practice it and why people come to that tradition. Um, And what was really helpful was realizing that it is a tradition of healing and and it's all about um, making sure and trying to repair ruptures in communities and ruptures in community relationships really interesting um i mean i think it's impossible to write about the past without 
bringing up political ideas and things that were happening. And you've talked Mm -hmm. about the parallels between reconstruction and now. And so I do want to ask you a political question, especially because we're in this moment of such incredible backlash, you know, and people trying to demonize these more complex renderings of history, you know, like with fake critical race theory ideas. And, um, you know, you're in this situated in this place where you're writing about black history at a time when people are trying to push back on what black history really was. And I, I'm curious from your standpoint as a novelist, you know, I sometimes think that novelists can work around that, you know, because they're bringing, they're packaging it as a story and maybe therefore it's not so threatening to some people who are in this, you know, kind of twitchy space around these conversations. So do you think of that when you're writing fiction? I mean, does it come to you as sort of a point of intention or is the real intention just to render the story as true as possible? Um, it's both of those things because the fiction doesn't work if you're not trying to write it as sort of emotionally true as possible. And if you try and um, put sort of like a preconceived framework around it, um, it, it fails as a fictional project. But in terms of like the overall decision to write a historical novel at this moment, you know, um, the parallels between today and Reconstruction are, are very high. And, um, you know, many of us are not even able to really understand the depths of those parallels because so much of the history of Reconstruction, we don't really learn about either in high school or even really in, in college. A lot of us, you really you really have to seek those stories out very, um, very intentionally to find out what was taken from us during Reconstruction from all of us, uh, Black Americans and non-Black Americans, um, to really figure out sort of like the death of democracy that happened for a hundred years um, in that period. Uh, and we don't really get to understand or, or frame it that way. And, and because of that, um, we don't even know what we're supposed to be asking for in this moment, you know, that we can ask for so much more because um, we had it for like a really brief uh, period of time. Um, so I, I want to um, sort of really bring that into light because I do think that there is a, a certain um, thing to be said about how we move forward if we have bigger things to imagine and if our imaginations are sort of really stuck on one very limited story about how things have always worked in the past then it's hampering us from being able to come up with really bold solutions that we need right now for our present day to make a better future that's beautifully said and it it reminds me of some of the things that you wrote and said about Haiti because and, and you can fill in the the gaps here a little bit for me because Haiti was there was this kind of great hope for Haiti that it would be this self-governed black country and it sounds like you know that that was part of what was so intriguing and influenced the novel um and I mean what a moment that we're in with Haiti now you know I mean it just I was when I was reading your book you know all of this stuff with the assassination of the president it was happening and all of a sudden resurfacing was all of this history of Haiti that I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, in the ways that they were oppressed and had to pay the French back all of this money and um, and yet, you know, when you're talking about hope, I think there was this real aspiration that Haiti would be this thing. And so now that you've talked about the history that influenced the book, I, I still hoped you might say something about the Haitian part of the novel and, and your own visit to Haiti. Yeah, I mean, I think what I just I I was so struck by when I was doing my research was how many um, black Americans 
uh, looked to Haiti throughout the 19th century and into the into the early 20th century. You know, like Zora Neale Hurston famously um, was really interested in Haitian culture and traveled there and wrote a wonderful book about it. Um, and how much um, that knowledge of that history and particularly the story of the Haitian Revolution was so inspiring and also um, terrifying to um, people who were invested in the system of slavery, but really inspiring to people who were looking for a way out of it. Um, and for a hundred years, you know, that was really inspiring and it's kind of um, uh, astonishing how it it has disappeared from from cultural memory right. in that way, um, and uh, I I so I really just wanted to sort of explore that part of it, and and um, you know the story of Haiti is uh, is intricately linked to the story of the U.S. because we are so sort of close by each other, and the U.S. has intervened so many times in in Haitian politics and um, sometimes really disastrous ways. And so, um, you know, I just really wanted to open that up because I think when we, the books that we read in English um, about Haiti or has been, have been published here oftentimes really sort of ignore that history. One of the things that I found out when I was researching the novel that was up until I think 1990, Haiti published more books um, per capita in their country than we did here in the U.S. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so little of that gets translated into, into English for us to read. And it's, it's just so fascinating to me that, that a country can be so close to us and we so, so geographically close to us, so intricately linked into our history and our foreign policy and how our country has defined itself. And yet the average American knows nothing about it and thinks that we have nothing to do with it. Um, and so so I just was really struck by that. And then also the idea that, you know, Liberty is extremely naive. And so she sort of has romanticized um, the country of Haiti into this promised land. And then when she actually gets there, she's sort of forced to reckon with what it actually means to, to live in the, in the actual country there. You know, the, it struck me that Liberty's struggles when she's in the United States, which is the first part of the book, seems to be more sort of race-based. And obviously, probably because when she goes to Haiti, it's, it's a Black country. And so then her issues are very much about being a woman. Woman, you know, mm -hmm. and so there's this oppression that she faces for her blackness here, you know, here <laughs> in the States and then her, her femaleness, you know, when she gets there and it's, it's very interesting because of course she's raised without a father, you know, she's surrounded by women and then she gets down to Haiti and there's the oppression of these men. Um, did you set that up as a contrast? I mean, were you thinking, did you kind of have wait till you got to Haiti to explore sort of the more female oppression or I wondered how that played into how you thought about her experience? Um, I think she's experiencing as a black woman throughout, you know, she sort of is experiencing um, a version of, of uh, black patriarchy when she, even when, when, even though she lives in sort of her mother's household and her mother is incredibly sort of privileged and powerful black woman for the time, she's still sort of um, seeing how her mother is um, really sort of diminished by the pastor in town, um, how she's sort of distrusted mm -hmm. by the other women because she doesn't have any connection to um, other men um, and how much her mother is um, really invested in this idea of herself as a pioneering woman and can't understand um, the complexities of color that um, Liberty is experiencing as much darker skin than she is. So her black womanness is is throughout the novel. It just sort of looks different in different mm -hmm. contexts um, because you know we are all. Um, 
I think oftentimes when we start to talk about sort of like systems of oppression, um, when you first learn about them, I think as as a like a young person, often it's very easy to get into this idealistic idea of like there must be some place that's going to be completely free of all of this, and I can just sort of find this place that's going to be completely free, or I can create this place that's going to be completely free of all of this, and maybe maybe that means that I move to you know an all women commune or something, or maybe that means that like <laughs> I decide I'm going to go whatever, and and you know the the truth of it is once you get to those spaces. Um, um, you know, the systems of oppression still exist. Everybody who lives in them were, were raised in the same culture you were and find ways to um, still continue some sort of form of oppressions um, that can fester and really um, become really unpleasant if no one's able to um, name them or sort of call them out. If everyone's sort of like, but we're all women here, so there must not be any oppression because we're all women, right? Like, you know, right. it, it sort of... Um, uh, uh, it will fester anyways. And, and the same thing is happening when she goes to Haiti. She's with these um, Black American expatriates who have ex- specifically moved there because they have this sort of idea of creating this uh, Black Mecca of freedom. So they have a very romanticized idea of the country when they get there and they're not willing to let it go or to even adjust at all to um concern with the actual Haitians who live there around them, right? Like they're they're so sort of committed to this idealist dream that they can't even actually interact with the people who other black people who live around there because it's gonna really shatter that dream if they actually sort of engage and um figure out their relationship to them. Well, thanks for that clarification, too, because I think it's important. There is probably a tendency to sort of silo those experiences. Um, But I I actually did have a a question that segues to it because it's kind of a culture question. I mean, I couldn't help but obviously, you know, it's like you're you're tackling such massive themes and like this moment that we're in is just like so powerful. And I think, um, you know, I was thinking about the these that this is actually a powerful moment for black women and their voices, your voices rising to uh, national like the, the the top of national discourse, you know, because I was thinking like uh, recently with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka just saying like, nope, we're not doing this, mm-hmm. you know, with black women spe- speaking out about voter suppression, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and what happened at Chapel Hill and even Meghan Markle, you know, being like, no to the royal family, right? So I wanted to ask you about that because your book has these incredibly powerful female characters, obviously incredibly powerful black female characters. And so I feel this moment of black women leading the charge in this moment of saying like, we've had enough and people I actually think are listening. (laughs) Um, I am curious if you feel that as well. Um. I think it's like a continual conversation that has sort of like always been brewing around. I think what's mm-hmm. super interesting is this shift away, this this um, shift into being interested in saying no and figuring out how to, to divest yourself from certain systems. That is the thing that feels new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is really powerful. You know, I think that in the, in it's, it's funny to sort of track where sort of ideas come from and where certain philosophies come from. And I, I think there was a real, um, like in the last five years, real, uh, a bunch of people writing and sort of thinking and trying to come up with uh, some other solution besides um, really sort of like knocking on the door of a, of a institution or a place that actively has told you they don't want you so like the idea of like well what do you do next and and the real 
reckoning that came with Trump's election of like, oh, oh, we are really not wanted. Like, really, you don't want us. Like, it's not like, oh, you know, if you just dressed a little nicer, or, you know, um, worked a little harder or made a little bit more money. It's like, no, on all every circle level, they don't want you. They don't want us. So what do we do with that information? Um, you know, and I, I, I think the idea of sort of let us divest from um, wanting an entryway into this and and hopefully the next step of, of that is sort of once we get the chance to to sort of rest from all of that, the next step from that is like, how can we build something um, for ourselves and for um, that that looks better and more humane and um, and actually serves more people's needs than this these systems that um, we've been told we should be trying to integrate that really serve very very few of our needs. Hmm. Thank you. And, you know, I've, I have a publishing question for you. I've, I've interviewed uh, a few authors on this question, you know, Tayari Jones and um, Disha Filia and Kiese Lehman, you know, all of who s- spoke to this idea that they, speaking of like kind of saying no, you know, mm-hmm. that they are being like to the publishing industry, I'm not writing for white people, you know, and I think that there's been this historical burden on black authors, like that you have to somehow write with a white audience in mind. And I do feel a noted shift and um, like I'm witnessing, you know, like within bookstagram, like black order, black authors supporting black authors and just being like, we got this. We are a giant reading block. Um, And I'm curious if you felt any pressure to write for a white audience or whether you kept any, you know, who if you whether you even kept an audience in mind. Um. I don't think, I think if the pressure for writing for a, a white audience, um, I mean, I think I, you know, there are moments where like in in a certain reaction or whatever, it feels like there is a white audience misunderstanding stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean like I am feel like I'm writing for a white audience. And I think many of the pressures, um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I think the pressure to write for a white audience was, came from internal for myself, from the sort of the idea that, you know, like if, if, we can just write and and um, like maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of black authors would say sort of on book tours, like I'm writing to show that black people are human. I think I've mm-hmm. even said that in the past when I was a, a, a like a baby writer, um, sort of <laughs> writing about stuff. And that to me is sort of like the internalized idea that you have to write for a white audience because um, it's obvious to ourselves that we are human. So even that is sort of like setting up for yourself a goal that is not entirely authentic to yourself. Um, when you start writing with that goal, then when you do get um, sort of like feedback back on a piece or a reaction from an audience about the piece that is very much from the white gaze, that means that your your reaction to that reaction looks a lot different than if you sort of start from the vantage point of like, I'm writing for myself completely. Mm-hmm. Um, for this book, it's written first and foremost for black women. Um, that was like very intentional when I was, when I was writing it. Um, and I'm really glad and happy to see that it's resonating with other people as well. Um, but the, the sort of like love letter in within the book is to um, black women, black mothers and black daughters um, and sort of uh, figuring out how, what it means to inhabit all those different roles. Uh, I, I just wanted to give a nod to your first novel that came out in 2016, and it was very well received. Uh, I saw one of the major news outlets called it explosive, and I was curious, what is it like, you know, when you're a debut novelist and you have a very well received book, and then you have to think, okay, there's this pressure inherently that comes with 
doing book two and maybe doing as well. Um, how did you approach that experience for writing Liberty? Um, I mean, I think because the book, you know, the book was well received, but it wasn't a bestseller um, and it got nominated for awards, but it um, won very few of them. So it didn't really feel like a lot of pressure because it was sort of like, okay, well, that book, it was well received, but like it, it feels like there's still stuff to do here. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm sort of like, um, you know, I, it, I've, I'm very happy with how the book turned out because it totally changed my life around. And, um, you know, I, I was able to apply for fellowships to be able to actually write um, full time for a few months at a time, which I'd never been able to do before. So I don't want to like pretend like it wasn't um, really wonderful because it was, but it also felt like there was still space to prove myself around certain things. And then also just um, with, uh, Liberty, it was, I really sort of came up with a number of craft puzzles for myself that I wanted to sort of solve for myself on the page. And so that was also the thing that really helped me pull through because it was just focusing on the project, which was like, how do you write about a country that you've never been to before in, in a language that you do not speak <laughs> in a time period, a hundred years removed from yourself? How are you going to okay. solve that problem? And um, when you're focused on that, it's really easy to sort of um, keep moving because you're trying to figure out as many sort of fixes to that as you can get to. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty exciting because obviously you're talking about like this intellectual challenge and it's an emotional challenge. I mean, it's um, just incredibly well executed. So congratulations. Thank you. What struck me about being in conversation with Caitlin was her deep curiosity and her scholarly knowledge of her subject matter. I know, of course, that this is what it takes to write a historical novel, and yet it was a reminder of the wonder that is our minds and the capacity that we have to delve into a topic, an era, our characters, but also how much opportunity there is in storytelling to opine on matters of our day. Liberty is political. It's feminist. It's a celebration of Blackness. And it's all these things in a kind of subtle way. I see in Liberty a book that opens people's eyes because of the parallels she talked about with regard to Reconstruction Era America. There's a commentary in here, and yet it's also a love story, and it's also a complicated tale of a daughter and a mother. It's a novel that has all the right elements and hits all the right notes. And so it was an honor to interview Caitlin. And I thank the San Diego Writers Festival. I hope that you'll go check them out, sandiegowritersfestival.com. And hopefully some of us can and will see each other there next summer in person. I'd love that. Grant and I will be back next week with an episode dedicated to Banned Books Week, which is next week. Banned Books Week exists to inform the public about attempts to restrict access to books whose content is deemed upsetting for the most subjective of reasons. So tune in next week and every week in celebration of our freedom to read and by extension, our freedom to write. Right Minded is a weekly podcast and we're grateful for opportunities like today's where I get to interview and collaborate with like-minded communities and events. So thank you so much again to the San Diego Writers Festival and a special thank you always to you, our listeners, for making Right Minded possible. And I'll be back with Grant next week. Thanks. Thanks.